a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. That's a clip from the trailer for Oppenheimer, the new Hollywood movie coming out this weekend. The film tells the true story of the top-secret Manhattan Project, where, during the Second World War, American scientists raced to build the world's first atomic bomb before the Nazis beat them to it. The film portrays the events of 78 years ago this summer, when in July 1945, the U.S. government tested the bomb in the desert near Los Alamos, New Mexico. It worked, and so the Allies soon built two more, and those were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, a few weeks later. Over 100,000 Japanese died instantly. More later died of radiation, but Japan surrendered, and the war was over. The new film has an A-list cast of movie stars, including Killian Murphy, who plays the Jewish chief scientist Robert Oppenheimer. But one Winnipeg family will be screening the film carefully, hoping it didn't leave out their late uncle, Louis Sloten, who was also there during the events portrayed on the big screen. Sloten was a brilliant Canadian physicist and a chemist, too. Born to Jewish immigrant parents in Winnipeg's North End, he built the business end of the bombs. Nobody knew where he was. Well, we thought he was at the university, I mean, told the University of Chicago, teaching physics. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Lou Sloten's family came to Canada from Belarus. They spoke Yiddish at home, and his father, Israel Sloten, was in the meat business. But Lou was destined for other things. He became a scientist. He got his PhD at the University of King's College in London, and he'd hoped to come back to Canada to work for the federal government before the war. But his application went nowhere. His family says it's because of anti-Semitism. So he went to work in Chicago, in the lab of the famous scientist Enrico Fermi, who invented the nuclear reactor. Soon after, America declared war in 1941, and the government had them all working on the Manhattan Project. Like Oppenheimer, Sloten also struggled with the ethics of inventing the weapon, using technology which he'd originally hoped could help treat cancer. But Sloten wouldn't live to go back to his original form of research. After the war, he was killed in Los Alamos during an experiment known as Tickling the Dragon's Tail. It exposed him to a fatal blast of radiation. But he died a hero. He saved everyone else in the room, using his bare hands to stop the nuclear reaction. Sloten did have a bit of a reputation for being creative. Others would have called it reckless. In the accident that killed him, he was using a screwdriver and his thumb to handle highly radioactive material. 3,000 people attended his funeral back home in Winnipeg. His accomplishments have since been celebrated. He's on a mural in the lobby of the Asper Jewish Community Campus. Winnipeg named a park after him. And Paul Newman once starred in a movie where his story is briefly told. A few years ago, I went to Winnipeg to meet Sloten's surviving family while I was researching for my book, Double Threat, about Canada's Jews in the Second World War. Here's my conversation with Sloten's niece, Beth Shore, and with her cousin, Rail Ludwig, who is Sloten's nephew. And we talked about growing up with the complicated legacy of their uncle's contribution to the arms race. When my grandfather, our grandfather, died, and he died... Uh, almost a year after Lou was killed in the accident. And it was a severe heart attack. And he may have had heart issues, but in those days, you know, who knew? He was still a fairly young man. 
and my, our grandmother had a stroke, um, a very bad stroke. Maybe it was about two years later. She didn't speak after that. I mean, it was, uh, it was a very traumatic time when Lou, Uncle Lou died. And uh, myself growing up as the oldest of the next generation, um, shortly after, there was not much said at home. It wasn't really talked about. And then I realized that something was really different. I was already in maybe grade four. And people started questioning me about my last name, like history teachers and things like this. It was all starting to come out. And I was constantly being asked all these questions that I didn't know anything about. And to me, my brother was born three months after Lou died. Okay. His name is Lewis. Then Rail's brother, Lewis, was the second. He was born in 1950. Yeah. And then the next one to be named that had, was our son, who is Philip Lawrence. And then nobody else has been named. Since then, you said it was a traumatic time. From what I understand, um, they actually saw him dying in Los Alamos, yes. Yes. which most boys' parents didn't see. They were killed, and that was that was mm -hmm. it. They never mm -hmm. saw the horrible things. I can't imagine what parents would have felt like seeing their son suffer so much for well, seven, eight days. It was a secret project, so they had no idea what he was working on or how dangerous it was. But I think he was a loner and when yeah. we, well, we we went to Los Alamos, yeah. the four of us. We Tell me about that. Who, whose decision was that to go and why did you go? Uh, it was actually mine because uh, I have belonged to a lawyer's organization called the Transportation Lawyers Association. They have a, a convention in the, in the United States every year. And uh, that particular year, the convention was in Santa Fe. And I knew Santa Fe was close to Los Alamos. So I said, I got to go because I want to go to Los Alamos. But I called Los Alamos from Winnipeg. And I got the operator and I said, I'm Louis Slotin's nephew. She immediately knew who, I was, who that was. She says, hang on, I'll connect you to our chief historian. And so we connected with him and he said, by all means, come up. We'll show you everything. But it was the opening. We, it, it ended up that we were at the opening of the Atomic Bomb Museum. Yeah. Yeah. And they had just declassified all the files. So yes. they had all the files that they could show us. Mm. And they, mm -hmm. they made and copies they of everything for shipped us. Shipped everything here. No yeah. charge. Yeah. We met Remy Schreiber, who was one of the scientists that was in the room when the accident when occurred. When the accident happened. Wow. What was it like for him meeting you? He was very. He, no. He, he was very practical about yeah. it. Yeah. He. he um, well, how many years later? Uh, you know, he. he he had a, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but he said things like, you know, they just didn't build that contraption right. If they had put the movable portion on the bottom and on the top, this, this accident never would have happened. You know, he, 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 that's the way he was always thinking. And, and he would say to us, well, don't hear these stories about how radiation spoils, spoils a place where, where it's exposed. Radiation disappears after five days. It dissipates, so there's nothing left. There's no radiation left, so it doesn't cause irreparable harm. He said he was a clown. Uncle Lou was a clown. And very quiet. And, and he was not out at parties. Remember, he talked about how he would uh, 
pretend to be a, a joker and he blow up his uh, try to blow up a balloon and puff up his cheeks and just dance around the room and everybody would get hysterical. I remember uh, Schreiber's wife. Yes. Talked a lot about that. Yeah. And he said, but when they, he, would, he would go off ship fishing. It was a group of them. The tribe was mm-hmm. one of them. They, when they had time off, they would go fishing. And Lou would come with them, but Lou wouldn't fish. He'd just sit on a rock and read a book while they did the fishing. Yeah. yeah. What, what kind of books did he like to read? Do you know? I think was it always science stuff? Or? He, he read some serious books, science books, but I think he also read, liked to read mystery novels. And at home, when the family was growing up, what language did they speak at home? Yiddish. All in Yiddish. Yeah. The kids learned English, and they would speak it. Well, the kids spoke Yiddish, too. The kids mm-hmm. spoke at home Yiddish. To, to, the to the parents, yeah. 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 Well, it's but Kalu did come back uh, to Winnipeg um, after he had completed his, his Ph.D., and he actually wanted to go to Ottawa and work in the National Research Council. Uh, but there were some very strong anti-Semitic attitudes in those days, and there was no way they were going to let a Jewish guy get into that position. How do you know this to be true? I've heard that too, and I wonder what, what evidence or what did you hear? This is what my parents told me. So I'd forgotten all about that till you started mentioning. So when um, Uncle Lou couldn't get into the National Research Council, he decided he wanted to do postgraduate work. And uh, it was Zeta Israel that, because the University of Chicago didn't have any money to give him. So Zeta Israel basically had to finance his stay in Chicago, and that's where he met Fermi and the rest of courses, mm-hmm. his history. There's two camps, one that he was a hero and one that he was his own um, author of his own misfortune. So I just wonder why you think that is, and how it makes you feel. Uh, I don't really know. Like, I've never thought about that. You know, what I've read, I believe, yeah. I guess. The naysayers and, are very much in the minority. Yeah, and I think that I feel that you know, the true story is there and has been written about enough. And once we had been in Los Alamos, that sort of... Even though he wasn't in uniform, right? Canadian Jewish Congress thought enough to put him... And he has like five pages in their book, which is, you know, I was like, who is this guy? And I flipped right over when I first saw him. I'm sorry. I'm like, okay, he's not a soldier. Who cares? And I went right to the ones that were soldiers. Only afterwards, when I realized who he was, and I thought, well, if they thought enough of him, and he did assemble the bomb that ended the war in Asia, he's, they were right. What contribution you think your family gave to end the war, but um, that's what I thought. So. I like to think that the real contribution he did, and both Maylene and I, unfortunately, have been part of that, is that his early stuff that we received from Los Alamos showed that he was one of the forerunners in radio, what has become radio chemotherapy today. So, mm-hmm. so in other words, his, he, he, was, he had trouble with, or he was a little troubled, I read, I don't know if you've read that, with what happened with his work and killed all those people in Japan. There was a petition that went around the, with the scientists in Los Alamos asking mm-hmm. that the, uh, uh, this, this weapon not be used as mm-hmm. part of the arsenal. And yeah. he was one of the scientists that signed that petition. You know, in terms of the legacy on your family of what he did, two people were named after him. You went to Los Alamos. You had a play written about him. It's an amazingly huge story. How has it impacted your lives, knowing that this was, you know, your relative? Well, what for me, for me, um, I pretty well went through. Uh, junior high and high school just telling his story and getting straight A's in history. 
I mean, literally, my name was the name. It was all coming out over that 10-year period or whatever it was. But I think the most interesting thing that has happened to me since that time, because I've always been very proud of who I was and the legacy of the family and what I knew and what I learned as I got older, was the fact that our children who grew up in the 60s, like you did, and not wanting to hear anything about the bomb. Nothing. Ban the bomb became the word in our house. Neither of our children were particularly interested in the story. And now that they're in their 50s, of course, it's a different time. But at that time, and I found that a very disturbing time for me. But now is your son and your, uh, the, your grandchildren legacy more... Um, interested in hearing about it? No, we don't discuss it. They know that we have all this stuff. And it's interesting because we had nobody in our families in the Holocaust. So, but I felt more of an attachment going to Yad Vashem and to the Washington Museum and being part of that than I did going to Japan and being at Nagasaki in Hiroshima. Can't change who he was and what he did. That's right. Did you know there was an asteroid? No. Named after him? No. Isn't it I knew an, a it's park. an asteroid? I knew there's a whole bunch of. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yes, you did. I of did? course you did. Of course you okay. did. Yes. Um, there are only 17,000 people who have ever been named for an asteroid. Well, what, what legacy and impact has being related to Moose Moten had on you? Mine was a little different. Um, I was always to talk about it at school because I was kind of a shy person at school and didn't really know if I could express it. But every 10 years or so, something would come up that would bring uh, my Uncle Lou to the forefront. And the first time that happened, McLean's Magazine uh, did a story, Barbara Moon Barbara was... Moon. And uh, she came to the house and she interviewed my dad and my mom. And it was a t front page story on McLean's magazine. And my mother insisted I take this magazine to school and show the teacher. So I did. Teacher said, thank you. He never mentioned it in class. <laughs> um, and then I noticed every 10 years, somebody will get interested in the story. Uh, what I did notice as, as the years went by is that those people that took the trouble to do the thorough research were the ones that wrote the positive stories about Uncle Lou. Barbara Moon starting out with uh, oh. Martin Zalig was was another one that did write thorough uh, story. Um, those are things that uh, that uh, impressed me, and I guess I had my uh, the moment it kind of hit me emotionally was I got a call from a Japanese reporter. This was in the 1990s. And he was coming into Winnipeg. He was stationed in Washington, but he wanted to come into Winnipeg because he had learned about Uncle Lou and the connection with the bomb, and he wanted to do a story, and, and he wanted to talk to me about it. We sat down in my law office and had a long interview. Uh, and when he was finished, he said, I'll send you my story. And he was writing a news. And the, 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 Olympics, the Winter Olympics were in the, his city that year in Japan. So that was the newspaper that he sent back to me, and it was actually, given the circumstance, it was a very positive story. 
and it focused more on his heroism and saving people in the accident than the fact that they created this bomb that caused this, this difficulty. Sloten's relatives say nobody from the Oppenheimer film crew ever contacted them for help making the movie, although recently a Las Vegas museum broached the idea of doing an exhibit about their famous uncle. You can learn more about Sloten in my book and from some of the other links in our show notes, including watching some actual wartime film showing Sloten in 1945. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Sidura Ludwig. She's Sloten's great-niece and a prominent Toronto novelist. And we'll end with a clip from that 1989 film about the Manhattan Project, which I mentioned earlier, starring Paul Newman. He plays the American general in charge, and John Cusack plays the character loosely based on Lou Sloten. You'll hear when the screwdriver slips and he gets blasted by radiation and is rushed to the hospital, where they know he won't make it. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. This thing is becoming real. It's going to affect thousands of lives. You are trying to uninvest it. I could do it without you. Well, if you do, and I said no, and something goes wrong. No human beings ever gotten this dose of radiation before.